Ephesians 5, verse 17. This is what Paul says. So don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask today that your word would be made plain through the proclamation of the word. Your will would be clear and discernible and exciting and open that in turn you by your Holy Spirit would open up hearts to accept the word implanted, that which is truth, that which is from the very oracles of God. We pray that you would speak into our church and that you would speak life and we would know that life and that life abundantly. Lord, we, we want more than just a lecture or a teaching. We want Jesus Christ to be proclaimed in such a way that we would be able to say with the boldness and the power of the Holy Spirit, I will follow him into my death. And as long as I live, I will follow him in my life. Pray that you would do this work among us in your church for your glory and for our eternal joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Don't be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. A part of that, a part of that sentence grabs a hold of some of us. It at least resonates with some of us because at least as Christians, I can probably say with safety that most Christians, at least in this church, desire to some extent or desire to some degree to want to know what the Lord's will is. However it pertains to your life and to your situation, I want to know what God's will is for my life. You want to know what God's will is for your life. If you're a Christian, we want to know what God wills for our lives. We want to know what the plan is. We want to know what's happening tomorrow. We want to know what's happening 10 years from now. And we assume that if God is planning it, it's going to be right. Even if you're not a Christian, there is probably some sense in you that you want to know what you're supposed to do for the next year or the next five months or tomorrow or tonight. We want some insight. We want some, and for the Christian, we want some divine insight into our lives. We want to know what God's will is. And for us, in one sense, this is absolutely simple because we believe that God's will is revealed to us in the things that he says. We believe that God says things, and those things are his will. We believe that what God says was recorded in the scriptures, and so Christians believe that the Bible is God's very will. That when we open it from cover to cover, we are looking at the very will of the Almighty God for his people, for the universe, and for his glory. It's the the unfolding story, the drama of the scriptures as we open it up and get caught up into that story of what's going on with God from all eternity and into the future, we are looking at what God is planning on doing. And to make it really simple, 
at the risk of oversimplifying, everything in this book that you have on your lap can be traced down to two different things. It's either law or it is gospel. Every jot, every tittle, every line, every phrase, every comma, every paragraph, every book, every section can either be identified as the law of God or the gospel of God. And both of those things are very good. They belong together. In fact, Paul would say in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Paul would say that again to Timothy later. I have figured out the law is good. Now this is counterintuitive to some of us. It's counterintuitive to me half the time because I don't often naturally think of laws as good unless they immediately benefit me. I don't think of parameters and boundaries as good. And this is a cultural thing, right? Ever since the 40s when Jack Kerouac came out with his book On the Road and there was this this paradigm shift in our minds and in our cultures that we were leaving behind the fetters and the, uh, the, the social norms and obligations of family and work and all of those things that we were obligated to, and we were hitting the road. We were getting on the road to go where? I don't know. Who cares? Everywhere, all, all places, nowhere. The, 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 the journey is actually the goal. This had tremendous implications for our culture in the decades to come, and it affects us today. We love our independence. We love our freedom. We love our autonomy. We're still on that journey. Going where? I don't know. As long as I have the freedom, unfettered freedom, to go wherever that happens to be. And so for our culture and for our mindset, this, is, this, this thing of laws and parameters and rules seems to some of us as though it hinders our God-given freedom, that which makes us so happy to have unfettered freedom, to be free from obligation, to do whatever we want. Rules, parameters, laws seem to hinder our freedom. That could not be farther from the truth in God's perspective. See, rules don't hinder your freedom. Bad rules hinder your freedom. Good rules define your freedom. And you don't even have to think too deeply about that. You just have to think of something as everyday and as normative as music, right? If there was anything that Jack Kerouac's characters were in on the road, in their convertible, blasting down the highway, leaving behind everything that they knew in, in order to pursue uh, happiness and joy and freedom and autonomy, you can almost certainly guarantee that they were pumping music. What is it about music that causes our affections to be stirred up? And it doesn't even matter what style it is. Whatever it is for you, whatever it happens to be that you listen to, there's something in it that seems to help us express who we are. If there's any flag that we can be waving for autonomy and freedom and for some rebellion, it's music. The irony is, all Western music follows a very strict set of rules. Music follows music theory. 
Western music, at least, to give you to further the analogy, follows rules that would say you have to operate within these eight notes. You have eight notes to choose from. Now imagine the musician who wants to make it big, express themselves, be autonomous, make a name for themselves, being told you have eight notes to choose from and that's it. Furthermore, there's a time signature, there's a tempo, you gotta stay in that. And so there is this box around musicians. If you're a musician in the building, you know what I'm talking about. There are certain rules, rigid ones, that you have to follow. Yet some of the most beautiful music on the face of the planet came from people who observed those rules, whether it was the Beatles or whether it was Sigaros or Adele or Tchaikovsky, it doesn't matter, all of them following a strict set of rules because good rules define our freedom. In the same way, the law of God functions in that way. As Paul would say, God's law is very good. It was designed not to restrict you or constrict you or to ruin you, but to define the God-given freedom that you have been given in the image of God. God's law, we can, uh, to further that analogy, directs the music of humanity's heart. How so? Well, the law of God directs our prayers. The Apostle John would say in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked for. Meaning, if we can just know what his will is, our prayers will be aligned with that will, and they will guaranteed be answered by an almighty God. The law of God directs our worship. In John chapter four, verse 24, it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Meaning that if we could just understand and know the law and the word and the will of God, we will experience worship like never before. That void in our heart will finally be filled and overflowing. It directs our Christian walk. Psalm 119 verse one. How happy are those whose way is blameless, who live according to the Lord's instruction. And for the rest of Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the entire Bible, all written specifically about the law of God, David sings his heart out. What does he say? The law is strength-giving. Psalm 119, verse 28. I am weary with grief. Strengthen me through your word. It's life-giving. I am severely afflicted, verse 107. Lord, give me life through your word. It's light-giving. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. It's joy-giving, verse 111. I have your decrees as a heritage forever. Indeed, they are the joy of my heart. And the list goes on and on. The law of God is how God's people know God. He saves us so that we might know him. How do we know him? Through his revealed word. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10 through 12. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. 
I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. How do we know this God? Through his word, which is implanted now in our hearts and in our minds. It's how the people, uh, it's how humanity flourishes. If you study Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you see hundreds of laws being constructed. Not because God is the Scrooge and he wants to ruin everybody, but rather he wants to protect people from their sin. And so he aligns them with his will by telling them what his will is. And when the people of God, as you look through the Old Testament, when the people of God obey God, their lives flourish. When they disobey, they pay for it. So God's law shows us how to glorify him, and how to flourish as humans as well. How to glorify God as we were created to do and how to enjoy the process, you might be able to say. So at this point, maybe we kick back and we say, well, that's all? All we gotta do is obey the law of God and everything will be cheery? Just obey and all our problems will go away. Okay, well, sermon over. Let's pray. Let's get out there and obey. Problem. We're the problem. Paul once said that the law was given because of transgressions, meaning that the more we sin, the more he had to specify why we were to align ourselves with the will of God. And this is where sin comes in. And the Bible declares in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Meaning none of us, even though we do good things, even though you might be able to compare yourself to someone else who's worse than you, might say, you know what, I'm scouting the land right here, and you know, I'm not a perfect person, but I'm probably in the upper one percentile. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Because we are not, God is not comparing us to one another. He does not grade us on a holy curve. He grades us in comparison to his holiness, and he is perfect. Meaning that all people have failed because of sin. Martin Luther once described sin in this way. If you can imagine that we have been designed and created to fully image the glory and the beauty of God, to look out on his splendor and his beauty and his holiness and be like, man, I want that. Luther describes sin as the heart turning and curving inward on itself. So you want to know what sin is? Sin is instead of being towards God, turning in towards yourself. It's instead of Jesus' famous line, not my will be done, uh, not my will, but yours, Lord, be done. It's us saying, not your will, Lord, but mine be done. It is the human heart turning in on itself. As someone else would say, it's the suicidal action of the heart against itself. That makes salvation something very, very, very intense. Because if that's what sin is, and if all of us have that condition, redemption and salvation have to be a whole, lot more than me just writing on the back of a church bulletin, yeah, I'm in. 
Salvation is a whole lot more than me praying a sinner's prayer. Salvation is a whole lot more than me just mentally assenting to an idea that Christ is a good person and I want to try that out for a while. Salvation is a whole lot more than sitting in a church pew. Salvation has absolutely nothing to do with anything that I've done. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, it is a gift of God. It is the action of a mighty God stepping into your destructive way of life and stiff-arming you by his grace. I used to be told when I was younger this analogy that salvation was, uh, it was this helpful analogy at first that this is what salvation is like, is you're like this person in a pool and you're drowning and God throws in this life vest circle thing, I don't know what it's called, and you grab it, and you grab a hold of that thing, and he pulls you out of the water. That's close, but it doesn't quite cut it. If we were to study the words of Paul, we would be more uh, inclined to say that salvation is more like you being drowned and dead. It's like you being at the bottom of a pool, dead. Ephesians chapter 2 says you were dead. I don't know if you know what dead means, but it means you're dead. <laughs> it doesn't mean you're flailing. It doesn't mean you're breathing. It doesn't mean you're reaching for something. It means you're dead. You were dead in your transgressions and in your sins, in the ways you previously walked according to the ways of the world. But in verse 4, but God, the best two words and the best, uh, the best two words you will ever hear in your entire life, but God. You are going that way, but God. But God what? God who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he had for us, made us alive. He made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in your trespasses, you were saved by grace. So what we should be able to say is that I, Chris Lazo, was dead at the bottom of a pool with no air, no air in my lungs, water only, and God not only pulled me out of the pool, but he resuscitated me, he gave me new life, and he brought me to breathe. Salvation, then, is crazy. It has to be crazy because your sin is crazy. Salvation is the regeneration of the heart. It is not me saying, okay, try harder next time. Nor is it us saying, okay, the law of God is good. I need to obey the law, and if I do that, I will be saved. The law was never designed to save people. It is powerless to do so. You know what the law was designed to do? It was designed to show you your hopelessness. That every time you tried to obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, you find that you failed to do so. Every time you tried to not covet after my neighbor's stuff, you failed to do so. Every time you tried to not kill, you may wake up on Monday and you're like, oh, congratulations, I didn't kill anybody today. Jesus says, but you killed people in your heart because you hate them. I didn't commit adultery today. You look lustfully at that woman in your heart or that man. The law was designed to take us down to the hopelessness of our broken nature. Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, the law then 
was our guardian. A guardian in Paul's day was a type of an employee, if that's what you want to call it, like a babysitter. I don't know another word to use. Whose job was throughout the day to take the, the, the master's kid to and fro wherever they needed to go. Okay, let's go over here to school. Okay, now let's go eat supper. Okay, now let's go uh, to the uh, track or field, whatever. I don't know what they did. The guardian was designed to bring that kid to and fro to where they needed to go, to lead them to where they needed to go. Paul says, the law was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. The law was designed to bring us to Jesus Christ, so that we could see the hopelessness of our human nature and see the power of a greater Savior and champion. The law leads us to the gospel. Let's talk about the gospel. We talked about the law. Let's talk about the gospel. If the law is the old covenant, we sometimes think of the old covenant as the Old Testament. That's it's not true. It's, the, it's, it's speaking about the law. The law is anytime God tells you to do something. It's an imperative. Anytime you are obligated by God's holiness to do something. So that's in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. That's in our verses right now. Understand the will of God. That's the law. Anytime you're told to do something by God is law. The gospel is whenever God does something for you in Jesus Christ. If the law under the old covenant was God saying, do this and live, the gospel is the new covenant, God saying, I will do this so you can live. If the law was God's requirement that we do everything that is required for us to be holy as he is holy, the gospel is God through Jesus doing everything on our behalfs that we could not do that condemned us to death. And when he does that, when Jesus dies on the cross, he washes away your inability to obey the law. Every sin that you have done in secret and publicly, he washes it away when you put your faith in Jesus. But he doesn't just wash your sin away. Listen to this. He doesn't just give you debt relief. He credits to your account wealth. The wealth of his holiness and righteousness. He doesn't just go to your your account and say, oh, you owe all of this to God. I will pay your debt and you are debt free but broke. No, he makes you debt free and then he makes you rich by the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that you are not standing in the holy presence of God debt free and broke. You are standing clothed with the righteousness of the king of glory. You can stand boldly before the throne of God with the badge of recognition saying, I come in the name and the righteousness and the confidence of a son of the living God and Jesus said, me. I'm here because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, the gospel changes your heart. Before I was a Christian, I hated God's law. So did you. Some of you are not Christians right now and you hate God's law. You might say, oh yeah, but I'm in a church. Credit? I'm not saying we didn't try to do God's law. I'm not saying we didn't try to be moral. 
or make good decisions. I'm saying that somewhere deep down inside, even if we don't know it, the Bible declares that we hate everything about God until he makes us alive to him. And what Jesus does by the power of the Holy Spirit in the gospel is he doesn't just wipe your sin away, he doesn't just credit righteousness to your account, but he changes your desires. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 through 28 alludes to this from the Old Testament. It hints to this promise where God says, listen, man, listen to this. I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Then you will live in the land that I gave your fathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. Meaning all that is required for you to be mine and for you to know me and to obey me and to enjoy that, I am going to do on your behalf all the things that you could never do to save yourself. So we can say that God's will, remember Paul's text, don't be foolish, understand what the Lord's will is. The Lord's will is revealed right here. In the law and the gospel from Genesis to Revelation, everything that he says, everything that he promises, not just little phrases, but also this overarching story of what God is doing, that's his will. Now, This doesn't satisfy us all the time. This isn't exactly what we always want to hear. Oh, great. The overarching storyline, what God is doing in all of eternity, great. But I've got bills. I'm lonely. Who will I marry? How do I deal with the spouse that I have married? I have seven kids. I barely know how to handle one. What's in my future? Sometimes this doesn't always make us happy because we're not so much concerned with the big picture as we are with tomorrow. Back in the day, in the decades past, television used to be overrun with sitcoms, situation comedies which were great because it was 30 minutes or 25 minutes of a situation. So it didn't matter what show you watched or if you watched all the seasons or all the shows, you can just bounce in on any sitcom, whether it was Seinfeld or Friends or I Love Lucy or whatever it is. You could bounce in on one particular show at any point and be caught up in the story that was going on because it was just wrapped up in this compartment, a 30-minute situation. For those of you that have TV, watch TV, it's now overrun by miniseries. So it's no longer disconnected, compartmentalized situations or scenes, but rather these long, overdrawn seasons that tell a long story. A tapestry of things happening to the point where you can't just jump in on a season and know what's going on. You have to watch the whole thing. 
very frustrating. I was relaying this to a friend saying, man, I can't stop watching the show because they leave it unresolved. I have to wait until the next one comes and then the next one comes and it leaves it more unresolved and there's this tension and I can't sleep at night and I just wish I never started this to begin with. To which my friend replied, well, that's why I just stick with cheers. (laughs) Sometimes when I struggle, I'm in the valleys of life and I'm dealing with the here and now, I want to go back to the sitcoms, if that makes any sense to you. And I wish that God operated in that way. I know he's got an overall plan and, a, and a, a, an overall theme and a, a tapestry that's taking millions of years or whatever for him to resolve. And I know that there's a future hope and I know that we're getting there. But I, more often than not, worry more about what I'm going through now than what he's going to do later. And isn't that just normal? If we were to be completely honest with each other, we know that God's got it under control, but does he have tonight under control? And does that have anything to do with what I'm going through now? I just got fired, you you know, you just got fired from your job. Where does this fit in with your plan, Lord? I live on the coastlands of Southern California. My rent is worth more than buying a house in the Midwest. And I just got fired from my job. Where, where I, don't, I, I don't see that in here, the part about the, the rent. <laughs> I need, I need a, a boyfriend. I, don't, I looked in the appendix. It's not in there. <laughs> this, aren't those some of the questions we ask more often than not? What are you going to do, Lord? Sometimes we just want God to work in sitcoms. At least I do. In one sense, as I said before, knowing God's will is simple because it's right here. In another sense, it's very complicated because we want the sitcom version of God's will. Lord, how am I going to pay my bills? Who am I going to marry? How am I going to deal with this drama? How am I going to deal with this person that I work with in life? How am I going to deal with this anxiety in my life? What am I going to do in life? What's a five-year plan? Where am I going to go next year? I don't even know what I'm supposed to do here. Why am I in Santa Barbara? Why do I live in Carp? Why do I live in Ventura? What are you going to do with my life? That's what I want to know. And I want to tell you before I lay it on you that those things are important to God. God is not just concerned with the big picture. He's concerned with the tiny, trifling, silly things in your life. The Bible says that he has numbered the hairs on your head. And if God knows every time a sparrow, Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, every time he knows, if God knows every time a sparrow falls, do you know when sparrows fall? No. Then he'll take care of you. If he clothes the flowers of the field, he will take care of your needs. God is intimately acquainted with your ways, Psalm 139. He cares about the silly stuff. But when we get to the point where all we care about is the silly stuff and not the overarching plan of God, his will, 
we might be more concerned with ourself than what God is doing. And the point of Paul in this verse is to draw our understanding back to the eternal purpose of God, back to his will. When Paul says, understand the will of the Lord, he's not speaking about those little things. God cares about those little things. God speaks about those little things in other places. But Paul right here is speaking about God's overarching will. And he is right now, Paul is drawing our attention and our understanding back to God's will. When Paul says, understand God's will, he's specifically speaking about something that is experiential, and he's speaking about something that is responsive. He's not saying, I want you to memorize some verses and know a a general idea of what's going on. He's speaking more than just an intellectual ascent. He's speaking about something experiential, where the will of God affects you, man. Like your, the rails of your train are directed by this. You don't even have to think about it. It's just in you. One author, uh, Peter O'Brien, puts it in a way that uh, is better than I can I can say, so I'm just going to read what he says. He says of this verse, The apostle is not suggesting that the readers have no insight into this will. Once you're saved, you get it. He's not saying you don't. Rather, he is admonishing believers to appropriate it more fully for themselves. God has revealed to them the mystery of his will in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let them lay hold of it and understand its implications for their day-to-day living. Meaning, what does his big plan have to do with my smaller plans? This is what the author of Proverbs is straining at in chapter 2, verse 1 through 6, when he speaks about the will of God and the wisdom of God. Listen to these active verbs that he's directing us to do. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you. Sounds like memorization and meditation. If you are listening closely to wisdom, if you are directing your heart to understanding. Okay, I want to pause right here. Remember what I was saying about being saved by grace? You have nothing to do with that? That's true. But once you're saved by grace, God calls you to press in to what you've been saved to. Saying, all right. I got you in, it's still a matter of grace, I'm still gonna save you by grace, you'll be justified, sanctified, glorified by grace, but I want you to enjoy this process and push forward. And I'm gonna be right behind you. Philippians chapter two, wrestle with your salvation. Work out your salvation uh, with holy fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. (laughs) What? I want you to do this because I'm in you doing that with you. I want you to desire this because I'm in you causing you to desire those things. So desire the things that I'm causing you to desire and work out the things that I'm helping you to work out. Okay. Awesome. Proverbs. Furthermore, if you call out to insight, if you lift your voice to understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge 
and understanding. Hallelujah. This understanding is experiential. It must affect you. When you're saved, you got to be affected. I'm not speaking merely about an emotional thing. Some people get emotional. That's how God affects them. Some people are stoic. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm speaking about the disposition of your will. It is, it is radically changed. Your desires are radically changed. This understanding of God's will, according to Paul, is experiential. It's also responsive. See, when you experience the divine presence of God, if you truly experience it, there's a call on your life to respond to it in kind. To not respond to it is an anomaly in the Christian life. James said in chapter 1, verse 21 through 25, Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. (laughs) For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer but one who does good works, this person will be blessed in what he does. Good rules define freedom. The perfect law of freedom, that which we preserve in, aligns us with God's will. This is what I believe Paul's main point is in this tiny little verse. After salvation, you're not just to go about your day. You're not just to be tripped up on the the, the normal events of this day. You're to handle them, but you are to pursue the Lord's will in every scene, in every situation of your life. My tendency is to say, how does God fit in, because I'm aware he's doing something great out there, he's on mission, he's changing the world, he's redeeming everything, blah, blah, blah. But my tendency is to, is to say, how does God fit into what I'm doing? Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to Chicago on a weekend trip. How, is that cool, Lord? How, what are you going to do? <laughs> I've given you this platform, what are you going to do? Do something awesome. <laughs> I like her, I like him, what are you going to do? How are you going to work in that? Here's this job. How are you going to work in that? My tendency is to find and to figure out, usually, more often than not, how does God fit into what I'm doing? What Paul is saying in this verse is stop it. Stop it, Christopher. And ask instead, what is God doing in the world? And how should you realign your life to match that? Stop tripping out over the small things in life. Don't ignore them, but rather change the way that you view them. Instead of saying, how does God fit into my problems? What's he going to do about these things? Instead, train, retrain your eyes upon the perfecter of your faith and say, what is God doing? What is God saying? What is God thrilled by? What is God happy with? Where is God's joy lying in? And how does that realign my heart and my desires in these small things? You know what the beauty of that is? God doesn't ignore your problems. Sorry, I keep doing this. God doesn't ignore your problems. He rather asks you 
to fix your eyes on him. And in his glory, your problems will somehow be realigned. It might not look exactly like you were hoping it, but it will always be good. You will find that the more you marinate in the heart and in the will of God, your smaller decisions will be influenced and directed by that. Meaning that if we were to renew our minds in what God says and who he is and what he has done for you, even our tiniest decisions will be influenced by that. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your spiritual act of worship. Then he goes on to describe that, saying, Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What happens when your mind is renewed? He goes on to say, then you will know what God's will is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. God will take care of your life. God will take care of those holes. God will bring you joy. God will bring you righteousness. God will bring you peace. God will enact his will in all of the nooks and crannies and crevices of your crazy, bumpy life. He asks you, rather, to not focus on those things, but to look at him and learn to how to enjoy him in the process of that, and you will find that all things will come together. As the promise is in Ephesians chapter 1, God is bringing everything together in the Messiah. He wants to start with you. If you've got drama in your life today, I want to exhort you not to ignore it, but to fall at the feet of Jesus Christ and say, I want to be all about your business. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand, sit, kneel, sing, pray, worship before you today, hopefully with a renewed sense that you not only have a plan, but your plan is glorious. You right now are expanding your kingdom and your glory and your church all across the world, and you are doing that in a profound way on the coastlands right where we live. And maybe we don't just see it all the time. Maybe we're so buried in the trifling problems, maybe even the big problems that we're facing with on a daily basis, that we do not see that you are conqueror. You are triumphant. You are victor. You have destroyed and are destroying the works of the enemy. And you are making your name famous right where we live. And it is true what the prophet said. That there will come a time where we will know your glory because your glory will cover the world like the waters cover the sea. And Lord, if there is any of us in this room who are missing out on your tremendous mission, we have not been caught up in the things that you are doing, I pray that you would blow the doors off of our spiritual eyes. Unlatch those hinges, take off the cobwebs, pull up the 
pull up the blinds, take off every obstacle, every, uh, everything that is in our way, the blinders that maybe Satan has put on us. Open the floodgates of heaven, God, and pour into our hearts an excitement for your holy name. Get us excited about what you're doing. And God, for those of us that can't even bring themselves to that moment, maybe we're, we're, we're in such a place of deep struggle and it's real, I pray that you would heal us. I pray for the peace of God to manifest itself in this place, in our church today, so that we would learn how to enjoy God and to teach others how to do the same. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.